All right. Good morning, everyone. If you would just go to the adjacent book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Good news, bad news uh, this morning to, to start with. Uh, bad news, if you're following your notes, we're doing chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and all of chapter 10. This is bad news. It's like 35 verses or something. So uh, hang on. You're going to have to listen fast. Good news. There are so many cute kids in here this morning. It's ridiculous. Uh, moms, way to go. I mean, y'all crushed it this morning. The cute kid overload from the back of this room is something special. Um, all right, Ecclesiastes 7. Let me do a little commercial spot uh, to get us uh, going. So uh, Easter is super early this year. We're creeping up on it already. And uh, perhaps you've seen um, sermon slides. So we kind of go back and forth with how to use this building best. And um, we decided this year for Easter, you know, it's like, um, you know, grandma's 90th birthday. You want to get the whole gang together, right, to celebrate. And while it's true that Jesus is resurrected every day, there is something special about about Easter and something significant about being able to be all together uh, at Easter. So we're going to go off-site this Easter to Judson Mill. There's a venue room there that'll hold 700 adults, and um, we're going to do one service there on Easter Sunday at 10 o'clock. Be a ton more information. We know that there'll be questions about kid drop-off and parking and all that kind of stuff. So all I'm doing is kind of a save-the-date marker for you right now. Go ahead and flag it. Uh, one service, 10 o'clock clock off-site. Uh, there will be child care for littles. Grade school and up will be in with the adults for that morning. We'll get you out in plenty of time to get to whatever festivities you have with family. And friends, the downside or the cost of this is we're going to need a lot more volunteers. So both on the front end to get things there, to get them set up and uh, be able to do, and then particularly on the back side, so we don't have people there till three in the afternoon. We can't be there till three because we'll get kicked out at one. So uh, we're going to need help kind of uh, uh, offloading stuff and getting it uh, back on trailers and stuff to, to move. But we think uh, the investment, the challenges will, uh, will be worth it to be all together, to be able to celebrate Easter Sunday as one big family. So go ahead and flag that uh, in your minds this morning. Let me pray, then we'll jump into the scriptures. <clears throat> Our Father, we give you thanks that even in that, uh, that mention that we... Uh, we have hope in a resurrected Christ this morning that we can uh, orient our lives and our fears and our frustrations. Uh, we can orient all of that in light of the fact that the most significant things about this world have been finished through Christ's good work, that there is a resurrected and ruling Jesus right now, and uh, his rule and reign is secure and one day it will be seen clearly and perfectly by, by all. And we thank you that the hope of that resurrection uh, fuels our lives uh, each and every day. It, uh, it postures us to be able to navigate a difficult world and a frustrating world with hope and joy because of what Christ has done. So we pray that that uh, context, that backdrop, will serve to uh, enliven our reflections uh, on the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, first day at a new university. You've moved into your dorm room. You've said your goodbyes to your parents. And you are summoned to the lecture hall for new student orientation. 
And over the next two hours at New Student Orientation, you get the rundown on all that you need to survive in your new world. As a freshman, it's overwhelming, it's scary, but it's also super exciting. Somebody or some bodies tell you from the front that there are ways that you can approach the next four years of your life to maximize the benefits of university, and there are some things that you should avoid lest you suffer the consequences. It's a really interesting reality in our modern world. Perhaps the most common mantra of our day is the, the, the mention of be true to yourself. Do what you want to do. Don't let anybody tell you what you should or should not do. You're the master of your destiny, the architect of your future. It's interesting, though, while this sounds good in premise, the practice is, is not workable. It's not tenable, even in the university setting. At a university, as in life, you, you simply can't just do you. There are ways, there, there are wise ways to live that will point you in a good, fruitful, profitable direction. And there are foolish ways to live. There are mistakes that you can make that will have consequences that will get you hurt, that will perhaps get you kicked out. Solomon agrees with this premise, that there are better and worse ways to live. He's not talking about life at a university, but he's talking about life under the sun. And in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, going down through verse 14, and then the totality of chapter 10, he's going to give us some practical guidance for better ways to live in the world that he's been describing under, under the sun. You might remember my illustration from last week. Up to this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has functioned something like a, a tour guide on the bus, kind of pointing from the window, look there, look there, look there. Now we're at the bus stop, and people are getting off, and he's saying, you know, he's kind of handing them the $5 bill and giving them the instructions for, here's what you're going to do now that you've got to go out into this world that I've been describing. Two provisional thoughts are worth mentioning before we look directly at these 35-some-odd verses. The fact that Solomon gives these instructions tells us that he clearly believes that there is meaning and purpose in this world. He says there's a wise way to live. If the conclusion of the book were, everything is pointless— the way he started. Everything under the sun, everything beyond the sun, it's all meaningless and trivial. Then to give any instructions for how somebody should live would be ridiculous, right? It would be akin to the university professor saying, you don't really have any hope of making that out of here alive. You're going to flunk out anyway, so just have fun. Waste your parents' money. Kick back, right? This isn't what Solomon does. He describes a world that has Genesis 3 written all over it. Then he says there's a way that people who are reflective of life beyond the sun can inhabit that world wisely. Secondly, to do this, Solomon is clearly relying on wisdom beyond the sun. So if he's going to give us instruction and guidance, he's already said that wisdom beneath the sun is meaningless and pointless. It's futile, it's trivial. So he's going to have to do what you're going to have to do, which is if you want to be wise, you're going to have to look beyond the sun for that wisdom. 
So Solomon functions for us a bit like a traveler here. He goes beyond the sun and he comes back under the sun and says, here then is how we should orient ourselves. Here's how we should live. Now, the focus of these chapters 7 and 10 is going to set up a contrast between the wise and the fool. It's exactly what Mike just read for us in Proverbs 2. And it's a contrast that, frankly, spans throughout the testaments of the Scripture. Two ways to live, a wise way and a foolish way. Solomon is going to approach these passages primarily through the eyes of the fool. Here's the the fool's way to live. So you might think of this sermon kind of tied, uh, you know, a fool's guide to life under the sun. If you want to really blow it, here's a surefire way to be a fool. And so since that's the lens that he uses, it's the lens that I'm going to use this morning. And I think it's a good lens because it's something that Jesus and Paul encourage us to do. Remember Jesus' instructions to the disciples. He says, I'm going to send you out like sheep amidst the wolves. So be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. Be, be circumspect in the world in which you are inhabiting. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So consider this morning some instructions for us, some guidance for us of how to to steward the days as a wise person. I'm going to give you seven ideas from Solomon this morning, seven ideas, and then a corresponding kind of street-level application for us, a fool's guide to life under the sun. First, verse one, a good name is better than fine perfume. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, since that's the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Want to be a fool? Step one, give little thought to death. Fool's guide to life under the sun. Want to be a fool? Don't think about death. Be blind to it. Don't, to use his language here, don't take death to heart. We've been moving through this book, so this type of commentary makes complete sense. And in fact, each of these seven principles for us, it's, it's as if Solomon, you know, we talked about this kind of funnel on the front end. He's, he's kind of uh, cycling in on these centralized truths. So you're not going to hear a lot this morning that he hasn't already said elsewhere. So this reality of death, the great leveler, Notice the connection he makes in in verse 1. Fine perfume covers up all kinds of nasty stuff. You don't really know what's underneath. So too, the the day of birth conceals. You have no sense of the character of a person on the day of their birth. You can't say anything about them other than they're alive, right? And they have pointy heads. It's weird, all right? But fine perfume can't cover a bad name at death. You might be able to mask the smell of the corpse for a bit, but you can't cover a man or woman's character. Death reveals 
whether somebody is wise or a fool. And so Solomon says, if, if, if we want to be wise, we need to live life backward through the eyes of death. You've probably never been to a funeral um, where someone starts like, man, it's really good that we're all here today, right? That's the way weddings start. We feel sad, even, even hopeless at funerals. But notice what Solomon says. He said, it's a good thing to spend time in the house of mourning around people of grief. Better, verse 4, to camp out in the house of mourning than the house of pleasure. Now, in, I mean, if we were to do a show of hands this morning, it's really hard to get 100% votes on anything these days. But if I were to give you a choice, say you want to spend, like, hang out the rest of the day today in the house of pleasure or the house of mourning. I mean, we're getting 100% approval on the house of pleasure, right? It's not much of a choice. You don't want to spend your day at a graveside when you could spend it in whatever form of recreation or rest you most enjoy. But Solomon says you got to be careful. Because if you do this too often, if you camp out in the house of pleasure and blind your eyes to the house of pain, you become immune to the reality of death. Death, it is for Solomon, that forces us to look beyond life under the sun and consider a God who exists beyond the sun. So notice the language in verse 2. Why is death better? Because it forces the living to take it to heart. This is your fate too. It doesn't matter how often you hang out in the house of pleasure. This is what awaits. So take it to heart. So question, church, do you take death to heart? Do you consider death as you should? Are you content in the house of pleasure? Step two, or idea number two. You want to be a fool in life under the sun? Become a companion of other fools. Become a companion of other fools. Blind your eyes to death. Don't look at it. Hang out in the house of pleasure. And then spend all your time around other fools. Look in verse 5. It's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot... So is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Again, we get just like, I mean, this contrast really falls on us weird. Like it's not, notice how the fool's voice is presented. It's super compelling, isn't it? It's a song. It's loud. Like the crackling of thorns, right? It it would, would give heat quickly, but then dissipate very fast. It's loud. And it's like laughter. Fools enjoy the house of pleasure, and fools join other fools in this house. Notice the contrast. It means really stark. What are the wise? In contrast, song, laughter, loudness. Fools, uh, the wise get rebuke. They get correction. They get redirection. There's a natural impulse to the house of pleasure where we sing songs, where things are loud, where there's laughter. And Solomon says, watch yourself. Those who are wise, consider death and consider the wise rebuke of other wise people. It seems as if Solomon did not get the the memo about tone in the modern world. 
because here's the way he frames this in Proverbs 12. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but those who hate to be rebuked are stupid. I mean, you probably get uh, 12 letters, right? Uh, 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 you, you don't tweet that. You don't call people stupid, right? Well, Solomon did. Those who, who hate to be rebuked are stupid. Why? Because wise rebuke places us on the right path. It points out areas in which we're blind. It commends us to godliness and righteousness. It doesn't let us get away with wayward pursuits. You might remember the adventurous journey of Odysseus in Homer's writing there, right? The siren songs that are compelling, that lure the sailors away. And so what does he have to do? Put wax in the sailors' ears, right? So they no longer hear the songs of the sirens that are going to lead them astray. This is what Solomon is encouraging us. Put wax in our ears to fools. Don't let them have your ear. How happy it is, Psalm 1 says. The one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. You get the progression there, right? Just content there. Sinners lead fools to peril. The wise listen to the wise and find the right path. Church, whose voice are you following? The voice of fools or the voice of the wise? Blind your eyes to death. Spend a bunch of time hanging out with other fools and listen to them and let them lure you astray. Idea number three, fool's guide to life under the sun. Attempt to manipulate and control. Attempt to manipulate and control. Look at verse 7. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the mind. The end of the matter is better than the beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Do not let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools." So we've got several practices that are mentioned here in these verses. Extortion, bribery, anger. Life under the sun gets super frustrating. So fools attempt to find ways to make things more bearable. Port person extorts, they bribe to get their way. They rush to judgment at the beginning, verse 8, and they're not patient to understand a matter fully. He or she lets spirits be angry in order to dominate and control. These are the natural impulses of frustrated people under the sun. We've probably all read these stories. Um, people who get trapped and do crazy things, like the dude who, you know, the boulder fell on his arm while he was hiking alone, you know, and uh, trapped there and starving. He amputates his own arm to break free, Right. When you're trapped, you do things that you otherwise would not do, right? And Solomon's warning us, you're going to feel trapped in a feudal world under the sun. And if you don't have a broader orientation beyond that, you're going to start to do things to manipulate. You're going to bribe, you're going to extort, you're going to lash out in anger, you're going to have this fury, this furnace within you that's going to want to dominate. You're going to see the inequity of the world. Good people suffer, bad people get ahead, 
Everything's going to be crazy and unpredictable. The seasons of our life are going to come and change. Rather than acknowledging this and giving ourselves contently to life beyond the sun, fools are going to grapple for control. And I want you to notice the language. Look in verse 7. There's, there's two times I mentioned. So someone, let me flip back. Number seven. Extortion turns a wise person to a fool, and a bribe corrupts the mind. The language there, if I were kind of underlining, would be turn and corrupt. In other words, they were once wise or on the path of wisdom and changed. They became fools. And this reminds us of a really important lesson, church, and that is wisdom is not a permanent status for us. It takes active, consistent pursuit for us to guard ourselves against being turned and led astray. All of us are susceptible to this. All of us are susceptible. So when we see these actions, anger, Bribery, extortion, manipulation, not hearing the end of a conversation because I've made up my mind at the beginning. These should indicate to us I'm walking the path of a fool. Church, is your priority to get ahead in the world through manipulation or control, or are you content to live for life beyond the sun? A fool's guide to life under the sun. Don't pay any attention to death. Whatever you do, hang out with a ton of fools. Strive to manipulate control. Get ahead when you feel frustrated and angsty. Idea number four, uh, live in the past and neglect the future. If you want to be a fool, surefire bet to do it. Live in the past and neglect the future. Look in verse 10. Don't say, why were these former days better than these? Since it's not wise of you to ask this, wisdom is as good an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun, because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God. Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So no one can discover anything that will come after him. You felt this angst, right? You probably expressed it. You might have this week. Get to a tough place and you say, man, I wish we could just rewind the tape. Things sure were easier back there. We echo the Israelites' voice, right? Freed from slavery in Egypt. And we at least had some good food back there when we were slaves. In contrast, the wise person thinks to the future, securing a good inheritance, verse 11, for those who come after. The word inheritance most often in the Old Testament is used in connection with land. Land is our inheritance, and land would, uh, it, it would bolster security. You, you, you had a place, even if things were hard, you were, you were fixed, you were secure. In a, a nomadic world, it provided a sense of, uh, of stability. Much more than land, Solomon argues, wisdom allows you to survive in tough times. 
It allows you to be secure, and it gives an inheritance to those who come after. Plus, life will not go on forever. Investing in things that actually matter store up something far more precious than silver. And Solomon says, hey, live this way because you're not going to change the course of the world anyway. Whether it's days of prosperity or adversity, be content. That's the world. That's the world that we inhabit. It's a world that's been cursed by God due to human sin. It's crooked, and it's inhabited by crooked people. So recognize. Recognize what you can do and what you cannot do in this life. Live fully present in this day. Don't long for the future, but live wisely in today, storing up an inheritance for the future. Sounds a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. But seek first the kingdom and the righteousness, and all else will be added unto you as well. Written at a time of great suffering, the Heidelberg Catechism Confession testifies to this reality in just really beautiful poetic language. I'll read it to you, the question question and answer refrain here. What do you understand, is the question, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer is this, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf or blade, rain or drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health, sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. And then the question, how does this understanding of providence help us? I love this answer. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have great confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. Patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and confident that nothing in the future will separate us from his love. Are you embracing sufficient grace today, church? Are you embracing sufficient grace today? Do those realities mark your understanding of God's control of your life? Idea number five, live like little sins are no big deal. Flip forward with me to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, another kind of is set in your Bibles off, this kind of proverbial back and forth in my version, somewhat centered face there to set it apart. Psalm writes, dead flies make the perfumer's oil ferment and stink. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense. He shows everyone that he is a fool. And the point is, in follies like, like yeast, right? It's, 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 it's small, little, but infest. A little folly, like a dead fly in ointment, makes it stink. So a little folly in the heart 
will show itself over time and will wreck your life. The temptation, of course, is to settle for a little bit of folly. Continue to dabble around the edges of known rebellion. To assume it's just a little bit, so it's not really that big of a deal. Notice what he says in verse 2. The direction of the wise and the fool are opposite. They're diametrically opposed. He's obviously not using right and left the way we might in political speak today. They're just going opposite directions. And like paths diverging, you don't see that a ton at the start, do you? The paths only start to diverge slightly. But the further you move away, the more you notice it. This is why death is a better uh, gauge of this than birth. The further you move away, you notice it. And verse 3, fools broad, broadcast their folly. Everyone sees it. Can't hide it. Some of you may have had this experience. We won't put anybody in the spot. But you uh, see an old friend or someone that you used to be best buds with in high school. And you hadn't seen them in, say, 20 years. And you see... <laughs> hey, our paths diverged a bit, right? And what's really dangerous about that is you don't see that divergence a ton at the start. And it's really hard to be self-reflective enough to see it when it's happening to you. And this is why the companions of fools versus the wise rebuke of trusted friends is so important. It seems just a little compromise here or there. Solomon is warning it's going to take you places you don't want to go. So church, are you making little compromises? Are you making little compromises? Idea number six, surefire means to be a fool in life under the sun. Make careless decisions. Look in verse four. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post, for calmness puts great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. A fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly places. I've seen slaves on horses, but princes walking around on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it. The one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull, the one does not sharpen its edge. Then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. If the snake bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. There's all sorts of illustrations baked in here about what happens when we don't use wisdom. We lash out at rulers, verse 4. We dig a pit and fall in. We break through a wall. We get bitten by a snake. We quarry stones and we get crushed by them. We split logs and we get hurt by those that we have split. The proximity of the action to the consequence is meant to heighten how blind people can be to their foolish decisions. They do things impulsively, unreflectively, and instinctually. And then they find themselves trapped by their action. Sin works this way, doesn't it? If we move through life thoughtlessly, we will get ensnared. We will get hurt. The natural drift 
of life under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, is toward folly and away from wisdom. So if you just let yourself go, you will get crushed. The picture used in the New Testament of the enemy as a prowling animal seeking someone to devour makes this point vividly, doesn't it? It isn't merely a place that I can go to get in trouble, but an enemy who is seeking to destroy. An animated enemy who is stalking me, who's wanting to take me out. And if I'm not attentive, and if you're not attentive, friends, then subtle action, even seemingly harmless action, can be something that over time traps and enslaves us. The enemy is wise. He is smart to your proclivities, and he knows what will trap and deceive you. So, are you thinking through the implications of your decisions? Are you thinking through the implications of your decisions? These can be simple, small. What job should I take? Where should I live? Big, who should I marry? How should I invest my resources? These little small things that we just move through thoughtlessly can be traps that harm us. Lastly, want to be a fool? Talk a lot without any action. Talk a lot and don't do anything about what you say. The words in the mouth, I'm reading verse 12, of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool just multiplies words. No one knows what will happen, and who can tell anyone what will happen after him? The struggle of fools weary him, for they don't know how to go into the city. Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth and your prince's feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in. Because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter and wine makes life happy. Money is the answer for everything. Do not curse the king even in your thoughts and do not curse a rich person even in your bedroom. For a bird of the sky can carry the message and a winged creature may report the matter. Like many of the Proverbs, there's a ton more here than we can consider. But I want you to notice just the big, broad, sweeping claim. Fools over-talk. The, the theme here is the over-talking, the mouthy fool. The mention of the mouth is perhaps, if you've read through the, the Proverbs, you know, 31, we can read through them consistently. It's probably the most oft-mentioned theme, what we do with our mouths, what we do with our tongues. While we may write it off as a little issue, Solomon says our mouths are the easiest way to tell if we're wise or a fool. And notice the contrast in verse 18. The foolish over-talker is like the person who lets the roof cave in because he or she's too lazy to do anything about it. They allow the house to leak because they're too negligent. All talk and no action. This is the motto of fools. The fool may even know in his heart that these things need to be addressed, 
but he or she is more content to just talking than acting. It's good advice for any of us who want to live wisely in this world. We need to strive to be people who live by faith in action and not merely in talk. Are you applying the truth that you believe to your actions? Are you applying the truth even that you say, that you give in counsel to others? Is it shaping your life? If not, you're on a surefire path to being a fool. So, want to live like a fool? Here's the way to do it. Don't think about death. Make friends with other fools. Attempt to manipulate and control to get ahead. Live in the past and don't think any about the future. Think that your sin and your rebellion is really not that big of a deal. Make careless decisions and spend a lot of time talking without action. And herein is a top seven list that is demoralizing. Because herein lies the problem. We are all guilty of walking this path, aren't we? We've all been fools. My guess is you found yourself on this list this week. In fact, if we had time, and we don't, we could walk through how each of these seven steps is at play in the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden so long ago. How these very actions underpinned the initial rebellion, and they've certainly played out in our stories, which presses the question, is there any hope for fools? Is there any hope for fools? I suggest to you this morning that Christianity, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, has the best answer for fools around. The message of Jesus Christ is good news for the fool because it asks and answers the question, what does God, what does the God beyond the sun require of those below the sun? And if the answer to this question was derived from our passage alone this morning, we would say this, he demands wisdom. He demands that his people live free from folly and commit to the wise path. If this were the answer, friends, we would all be damned. We would all be hopeless and helplessly cut off from God because we have played the path of a fool. But thankfully, in God's perfect plan, he knew the folly of his people and he purposed to walk the path of wisdom for them. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, perfectly, completely, and consistently obeyed all that God desired for his people. The words from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul holds up that this word of the cross is folly to the wise in this world. But to those who are truly wise... The message of Jesus is wisdom from God. Because what does the message of Jesus tell us? What does God demand from people under the sun? He demands repentance and faith. He doesn't demand perfect wisdom or else we would all be forever cut off. He demands, he calls for from us repentance 
and faith. If we bank our hope on our own wisdom, we become fools. But if we admit our folly and pursue God's wisdom, then through Christ we can be made wise. We can find hope in the perfect life of Jesus, given to us as a gift through faith. And then we can find help through the indwelling power of the Spirit to repent of our folly and to pursue wisdom as God, through his Spirit, brings it to mind. God did not lessen his demand for perfect righteousness. Rather, he satisfied it fully through Christ. And by that satisfaction, we, through repentance and faith, who have all played the fool and will play the fool again, can fling ourselves wildly on the mercy of God while inviting the Spirit of the living God to bring transformation to us in these areas where we need to turn from our folly and turn to Christ in faith. So to that end, let's pray and ask for God's help to be people marked by repentance and faith.